0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: Innovation. Progress. Everybody wants more of it. The more the better. It improves our lives, it makes work easier, it makes our economies richer. But what is innovation or progress? How can we measure it, and can we design institutions and train individuals to get more of it? Or is the very framework of progress misleading, a victim of the so-called Whig interpretation of history that treats society as on a singular path of progress, but comes at the expense of denying the world in all its messy, unprogressive reality. You're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Cukier, a senior editor at The Economist and your host. And this week, we are going to consider some innovation around innovation. But first... To understand what innovation is, I spoke to the person who is arguably the Charles Darwin of innovation studies, Annalise Saxanian. Anno, as she's known, is a professor and the former dean of the School of Information at the University of California, Berkeley. Her research in the 1980s and 1990s on geographic clusters for high-tech industries is the seminal work in the field. Anna let's get right down to basics. What is innovation?
2: I think innovation is solving a problem in a new way. It could be an existing problem, like how to cure a disease, um, and you might, you know, invent a new drug. Or it could be one that was unrecognized. Many of the innovations lately have solved problems we didn't know we had. It doesn't have to be a product. It can also be a process, new process of production. It could be the way you organize a firm, it could be a new business model, it could even be software. New algorithms are quite innovative these days.
1: And now what about progress? Do you think that over time that we can actually identify places that lead to greater progress and innovation versus places that don't? And can we decrypt the reasons why?
2: I think we can identify places. Obviously we we understand that Silicon Valley has been just a hotbed of, of innovation over the past five or six decades, for example. And and we measure it not just by patenting, which is clearly, you know, through the roof, but also through value generation in the marketplace is a good way to measure successful innovation.
1: Now, in your earliest work from your PhD thesis, you looked at the factors that led to certain areas being more innovative than others. When you look into your crystal ball and try to decrypt the world, what's the secret sauce?
2: Well, that's the million dollar question or many million dollar question. The first thing to say is at the time when I wrote this in the 80s, 90s, Silicon Valley was the only place. And now we see innovation popping up all over the world. And I think what that means is that many people have tried to identify certain things like universities or science parks or venture capital as incentives or structures that create innovation when I think the real issue is about people. Innovation is about people and the relationship between people in firms, in financial institutions, in education, how they connect and and the interconnections between people with skills who are able to learn from each other very quickly. And that happens in a place. It's very hard for that kind of learning to happen over the internet or remotely.
1: Now, recently in The Atlantic, Tyler Cowen, an economist, and Patrick Collison, the CEO of Stripe, have argued for a quote-unquote new science of progress. Can we have progress as a science? Is it a new science? Do we need it? What would it look like?
2: You know, I think all of history is about progress. I think the new science of progress, in that article they ask about why did Silicon Valley succeed and not Route 128, and that certainly gives us A lens into a certain kind of progress, which is economic progress, technological progress. What do you mean by progress? Some people would say progress is about a better climate. This has been
1: incredibly helpful. And the reason why is I'm going to accuse you of falling into the sin of the Whig interpretation of history. This (laughs) idea, you're a Whig. Because you, you, are, you have this idea that there is this thing called progress and that we can identify it, we can know it, and we can get more of it as long as we use our rational faculties and our ambition and our goodwill and get the incentive structure right. And the Whig interpretation of history was cast aside because of World War I and the lost generation.
2: I think the reality is we can't even agree on what progress is. I think that progress is different things to different people and different times. I think that we live in a world where we have leadership that is kind of aimless and uh, can't even agree on what the goals are. The business community may or may not be able to agree, but I'm not sure who in the society would define what progress is today. So,
1: if we can't define it, how do we think we can teach it? You're the School of Information. What are you teaching?
2: Well, I think that you can teach people how to be creative. You can teach them how to think outside of the box. There are many things that you can teach them to help make progress along certain trajectories. It's just we can't agree what the big problems are.
1: But it's also interesting that a lot of the people who have sort of fueled progress, whatever that actually is, are people who have deliberately thrown themselves out of the system. Of course, Bill Gates for Microsoft, Mark Zuckerberg for Facebook, and even Patrick Collison left MIT and now leads Stripe, a payments company.
2: I think our institutions are not historically very good at teaching us to be creative and innovative. And so people who have grown up and been empowered, like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, have been empowered to think creatively, now have at their fingertips resources that allow them to really address problems and solve problems in a totally new way. Instead of studying a
1: science of progress that has so much presumption in it, wouldn't we learn more if we studied the science of despair?
2: The reality is that innovation is, you know, it's about people working together to solve problems. That's what we said. And it sometimes works, you know, and if you get a place where all the right things come together at the right time, that's fantastic. But there's a lot of right things that have to happen. And we live in a world right now where many other things are happening. We have leaders who are trying to achieve different goals than we'd like to achieve, you know. Innovation depends on those broader contextual things as well history. I still think, you know, if you want a science of progress, maybe you just go back to history. So
1: let me flip that around. Do you think that there is actually progress?
2: Over the long haul, there is progress, but there are many, many backslides. It is never a straight line. And I think we're living through one of those periods of backsliding. Anna Saxenian, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ken. Great to talk to you.
1: Silicon Valley and their pretenders are fueling a certain form of progress, really just technological or economic advancement, not societal progress per se. The Whigs will have to come back to fight another day. The evangelists for a quote, new science of progress, unquote, are Patrick Collison and Tyler Cowan, the authors of the essay by that title. Patrick is the co-founder and CEO of Stripe, a startup that manages online payments. Patrick, what is progress? had it really be a science, and what is new about it?
3: I think it's a really important fact that the overall rate of advance of our civilization and our culture over the past couple you know, hundred, a couple thousand years has not been constant. Uh, As, you know, obviously everybody knows, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, uh, which of course are in the UK, the rate of human advance jumped sharply, kind of very discontinuously with what it had been for the past couple thousand years. For most of human civilization, we didn't advance very much uh, over the course of any single generation. You know, things remained on average, largely as they had been. We figured something out uh, around the 18th century about how to make everyone better. Off, right? That was a combination of new technology, new institutions, new means for disseminating knowledge, and you know, lots else besides. And I think what's important about that is how well all of those systems work together. It's not some kind of cosmological constant. It's something that's kind of ultimately under our control. And so I think as we look at the world as it exists today and we reflect on the problems that exists, an incredibly important question is well, not only how do we solve any of these specific problems, but how good are we at solving problems in general how effective are we as a society in delivering the advance the progress the dissemination of wealth and so on that everyone in the world requires and so that's what we're calling for people to study
1: okay why study it as a science now?
3: Many of the individual questions within progress studies are not new. And something that I think is important to emphasize is there's already a tremendous amount of very relevant and important work happening around what we would consider to be progress studies today. And so in calling for progress studies, it's less that we're calling for completely new work that's not happening anywhere currently, but rather that we're calling for more funding, more interdisciplinary collaboration, and frankly, greater importance being placed upon this work. Our observation is simply that it's more fragmented than it could be and more fragmented than it should be when you consider the aggregate importance of these questions.
1: You wouldn't be posing the question unless you had some sort of tentative answers. What do you think you're going to discover if we have a science of progress? Where will progress best flourish and what will Quash it.
3: It's hard to know exactly what it is, you know, kind of a priori, ex ante, that'll you know, do the most, advance our knowledge on all these different frontiers. But what is striking if we choose any kind of particular frontier. Is how many suggestive data points there are that low-hanging fruit might exist. And so, for example, clearly how effective we are at producing new scientific knowledge is a a, a very important input into our aggregate rate of advance. And within science, I mean, you you talk to any scientist and you ask them, are you happy with how it is that we support and fund scientists? Do we think that we've effective mechanisms, institutions, and structures in place to enable scientists to pursue what they consider to be the most important work as effectively as they possibly could. I've yet to meet a scientist who has answered affirmatively uh, in response to that question. And in fact, uh, there was a a paper a couple of years ago from Pierre Azoulay, an economist uh, at MIT, who analyzed a particular science funding program, uh, the HHMI uh, investigator program. And he concluded that HHMI-funded scientists were about 2x more likely compared to their non-HHMI-funded peers to produce top 1% scientific work as measured by citation count. He sort of took a, an ostensibly identical peer set that were, that were not funded by HHMI. And so that's a very suggestive quantitative example that accords with the kind of anecdotal qualitative experience that even small perturbations to how we fund, how we enable scientists might actually yield really significant uh, broader societal returns.
1: Hold on a second. Progress? I thought artificial intelligence was going to do everything.
3: <laughs> uh, well, uh, AI is certainly um, a, uh, a wild card in all of this, and it's uh, it's difficult to predict at this point uh, in 20 years or in 50 years or in 100 years how much of our collective ability to generate progress uh, is going to be uh, substantially determined by whatever it is that AI becomes. Um, uh, it, it, it's possible. Uh, that AI will sort of rescue us all from uh, whatever limitations and flaws exist with our present terrestrial models. But uh, who knows how long that'll take. And it's certainly an open question as to the magnitude of the impact that it'll have. And so my belief is that we, we should not put all of our eggs in that basket.
1: Okay, so what is it that humans can do that machines can't?
3: I think that too is an open question, and maybe over the very long run, the answer is nothing. Right? I'm not some kind of a human essentialist. It's not clear, in some sense, how much that question matters. I mean, it's in principle possible that uh, you know, even once we generate artificial intelligence, that those beings, those AIs, won't be transformatively more intelligent uh, than than we ourselves are. Uh, in that, you know, perhaps there are sort of ceilings and limits on on, uh, on sort of cognition as a general emergent phenomenon that we're not aware of, it's obviously possible that's completely ridiculous and that they will be sort of 100 times more brilliant or more. And I think it's just too early to know.
1: Do you have a feeling that perhaps you've become piqued by the interest in progress and ingenuity and invention because of your own personal narrative, having dropped out of MIT and then found yourself uh, the head of a startup that was sold and you became wealthy and then immediately you created another startup that's done even better?
3: Perhaps to some degree I've been influenced by my own experience and and certainly uh, my own experience shows just how contingent having the opportunity to contribute to progress is I think there are counterfactual you know versions of my life where You know, I'm still in Ireland and doing something that's far more narrowly scoped in impact. I grew up in a very rural part of the country. Uh, We were sort of surrounded by farms. And it's only thanks to the sort of the happenstance and the sort of chance interventions of a couple of really important people that I've had the opportunity to do what it is that I now do. But I think the thing that's influenced me even more is what it is that Stripe does, uh, in that Stripe works with millions of the highest potential companies all around the world. And so we're sort of a platform for these new ventures, for these new undertakings, and for people doing things that weren't previously possible. When we survey companies that are built on Stripe, about half of them tell us they're doing something that simply was not possible 20 years ago. And so as we spend time with these companies, we get to know them, we talk to them, we ask them why it is that they're doing whatever it is that they are doing, we're very struck by just how much randomness there is in in, in those pachinko machines. Uh, And it's I think, kind of inevitably pulls one towards the question of, well, how can we better enable that? How can we more broadly distribute that opportunity? And what might that do to our collective ability
1: to advance? How is it that Stripe is sort of fueling progress? Is it a symptom of it? Is it a pioneer of it? Are you advancing it? If so, how? Well,
3: you know, I I don't want to overstate our significance or ability here. I, I don't want to sound sort of, you know, grandiloquent or grandiose. But what it is, we started out building a payment platform for Internet businesses, as simple as that. And so you want to accept payments on your website, in your app. You want to
1: charge people over the Internet. We built a system that makes that really easy to do. What have you learned about the nature of progress and the science of progress, if you will, as an entrepreneur? two big things we've learned that come across sort of very clearly from all of our interactions
3: with the companies that we support are that, one, there really is an enormous amount that can still be done to lower barriers to entry and to increase the number of instances of entrepreneurship that exist in the world. We think of the number of startups or the number of you know, innovative new ventures that exist around us, perhaps as some kind of fixed constant. It's not. And not only is it not a sort of fixed quantity within a specific country, it's a sort of especially not as you take the sort of full global view of this and you reflect on just how many internet connected individuals there now are, but how few of those have ready access to the ingredients, the inputs, the support systems and to the capital that would make it possible for them to go and pursue something that they think is important or, or, or missing or sort of within their capabilities to build. The second is that once one is sort of pursuing one's idea, once you've built sort of whatever it is, there's still a great deal that can be done to determine how successful that effort is going to be. Who are you going to hire? How are you going to hire them? Which markets are you going to serve? How are you going to serve those markets? How are you going to help consumers find out about your product and so on? These are incredibly important questions for these businesses. And we're still in the early days of figuring out how the... Aggregate practice of knowledge management and software businesses, how they should best be executed. In the Progress Studies article, we've sort of cited some suggestive example of sort of how management practices across firms can make such an enormous difference to their outcomes. There are now two instances of randomized trials in different countries and different firm sizes, uh, one in India, one in Mexico, undertaken by different researchers. They took two baskets of firms in each case, partitioned them in To taught half the firms better management techniques, did not teach the other half, and in both cases saw uh, really robust improvements in their medium-term success, in their two-year, their five-year revenue, and so on, with, again, non-trivial effect sizes. And the, the fact that these are the findings from even quite early research before we've even optimized what it is that we should be teaching, I think this suggests that for any given firm, for any given business, for any company, there's potentially a lot that we can do to make it more successful.
1: Patrick, it's fantastic to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local
3: business to a global corporation.
1: But individuals and companies are trying to redesign their activities to be more creative and inventive. That's what makes geographic clusters so important, be it 17th century Cremona for violin making or Silicon Valley today. Now there is emerging a new breed of company that aims to reinvent the invention process altogether. One of the most prominent is Zenova. It is based in Seattle with a team of professionals of all nationalities, ages and genders. I spoke to Zenova's founder and CEO, Edward Jung, who himself has more than a thousand patents and was Microsoft's chief architect in the 1990s. We started by talking about how the location of technical progress is changing and who is doing the innovating. You
0: know, we are exiting a, a point in time, very unique in history, 150 years, where the United States has pretty much dominated the innovation landscape. So what we see now is essentially the democratization or globalization of innovation, Innovation is now happening everywhere, and the large pools of capital and demand, they're now all over the world. They're not very concentrated in the United States. The United States is still a leader, but there's a shift that's happening from you know, maybe being the 70% of the source of venture capital to now maybe being down to 30 or 40%. And that means a very new kind of business opportunity will arise, uh, which is how do you actually globalize the talent, the demand, the capital – and we have just seen, you know, my own company has just seen in the last 18 months so many changes has come out of the uh, U.S.-China trade war. You know, all these kind of new complications that are showing up about how you can move everything from data to innovations across borders. So we're all trying to assemble those pieces together and we're just seeing a lot of uh, evolution just in the last year on what's going on there. And Brexit's another one, in fact.
1: Why should Brexit and Trump and a trade
0: war affect innovation? We try to move things as friction-free as possible across borders. And that actually extended even to intellectual property. It extended to investment dollars, taking equity positions in companies, and to basically moving goods and services across borders. And now all of those have faced new challenges. Uh, We're seeing lots of activity around protectionism around IP. We're seeing new kinds of uh, constraints on equity investments cross-border. These are all things that are relatively new, uh, but really interesting developments. Uh, You know, my company's chairman, Yorma Olila, who was uh, most recently chairman of Shell, was talking about how if you look at what happened with energy, oil, you know, became this global issue. It became a big component of geopolitics. And why? Well, because it turns out the source and the demand – And kind of the packaging or refinement of oil all happens in different places. And the geopolitics causes a constant change in the way you have to actually think about how do you get the source and the demand connected. And we're seeing that happening in innovation too. So this is a new thing. If you really look back only 30 years, it really wasn't happening. And that's great both opportunity and a challenge uh, because I think as a species, we need innovation even more than ever. Uh, So making sure that actually continues to happen easily I think is is a big challenge.
1: Your company is trying to reinvent innovation. Describe what it is you're doing and why the current system doesn't work.
0: I'm always embedded in some organization that's not really optimized for innovation. And so I really started thinking, maybe it's time to take a fresh sheet and really look at what do you need to do to build an organization that's really about innovation. One of the first things um, we looked at is how do you actually build a structure that's organized around innovation? So I think we all understand now that to be really innovative, you have to take some risks. And we know that a lot of time you're embedded in a capital environment, like if you're a multinational, where it's very hard to take those kind of risks, right? If you're going to embark on a project that has, let's say, a 9 in 10 or an 8 in 10 chance of failure, and you're Boeing... It's very hard to believe that the investors in Boeing want you to take their capital and put it on something that has a 20% chance of success. So we think startups might be able to do that. But they actually tend to be undercapitalized and very worried about getting their next slug of capital. So we developed a very kind of cloud-based virtual thing. You could kind of think of it like an organization or a SPV, a special purpose vehicle. And all it exists for is to be the most optimal, efficient way to do innovation. Uh, So, in fact, we've had customers who will look at projects we do where we'll come up with hundreds of solutions and then winnow them down to, um, let's say, three or four. And the thing they'll focus on isn't the three or four solutions that survived. They'll kind of go, how did you kill 150 projects in less than a year? because it takes me three years to kill a project, right? So if you build an organizational structure that's really, really dynamic and it's able to have people enter in and exit for risk capital or risk sharing, I think you end up with a very different kind of system that encourages innovation better than something like um, an LLC or a corporation or a venture-funded company.
1: Okay, so there's two forms of innovation that you're pioneering. On one side, it's the process of innovation, On the other side, it's the payout or the reward structure of innovation. Is there a third or have I
0: seen the 360 of what you're doing? No, there's also incentive because I think you can't do one of these without the others. So the incentive system also has to match this. So how do you build an incentive system that's long-term and flexible? So the beauty of equity, you know, now that we kind of understand it over the last 30 years, uh, is that, you know, it helps people take risk. Um, so we've developed a kind of approach where we give you equity in a project that might turn into equity in a security. It might turn into a royalty. It might turn into uh, some kind of efficiency gain metric. The most important thing that we learn from the equity markets is that as long as everybody's aligned to try to produce the value, you should have some trust that eventually it will produce a good value and – Hopefully, it will continue to produce good value as long as those ideas and that project is valuable. But the other thing that is important about incentives is that it's not trapped into an organization that has to feed itself forever. There is a really interesting question and we have investors who actually are investing on the belief that there will be no careers in the future, that the smartest people are much better off being agile to the projects that they engage in and the companies they engage with than to bet on a single one company. Uh, So I think that's also another component of this is you build a very agile incentive mechanism uh, that gets everyone aligned around these projects and trusts that there will be a payout somewhere down the line. Okay. I
1: see the future, and the future is about reinventing innovation, changing the reward structure in terms of the capital payout, and changing the incentive structure of the people who participate in it. But you're actually looking at the technologies of the future. Tell me, in 35 years, what will be
0: quotidian that doesn't exist today? In the future, the packaging of technology alone is probably going to end, right? We're seeing now that technology now has to start getting packaged with things like policy, things like rights, things like economics and I think that's going to be the big change. We went from an era 50 years ago where national governments were extremely powerful to now the perception that they're quite weak Uh, and their reaction to doing so is to influence the things they know how to influence which is sort of altering the economy quite a bit right now Uh, but we have not come to the new normal yet Uh, but that new normal Whoever figures that out, how to package that well, is probably going to do quite well in many different technologies. So what we saw with the computer revolution or the Internet, I think, is just really the, the tip of the iceberg. Those things were so unusual to us because they were so broadly applicable, right? It wasn't like, oh, this is only useful for, for transportation or for heavy manufacturing or something. And we're going to see many more of those that become hugely horizontal. That, I think, is going to be really fascinating because they're so horizontal – And that's not the way policy works. (laughs) It's going to be a very interesting um, evolution there. Edward, thank you very much. Thank you.
1: So innovation is happening everywhere, potentially by anyone. It will change not only our economies, but how we govern ourselves. I am coming to agree with Patrick Collison that we need a new science of progress. And I have to confess... I'm a bit of a cynical Whig, who believes in progress as the motor of history, albeit one that sputters and backfires and sometimes rolls in reverse. That's all for this edition of Babbage. Please don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference. And if you like our journalism, please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. That is progress. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation...